Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Science Dispatch Podcast. My name is Cameron English, your host, as always. Joined again by my, uh, I, don't, I don't know what to call you guys. I guess we're all co-hosts of this show. Of course, I'm talking about uh, Dr. Barbara Billauer, who is a longtime contributor to the American Council on Science and Health, legal scholar, uh, an expert on bioethics is, is what I like to call you since uh, you explain stuff in a way that normal people like me can understand. And then, of course, Dr. Chuck Dinnerstein, Director of Medicine at the American Council on Science and Health. I kind of feel like this show is turning into The Doctors, except it's informative, unlike, <laughs> unlike the one on TV. <laughs> how, how are you both today? I'm good. I'm good. But, I, you know, I, now that you, you've given me the... You've given me pause to think about being the doctors. Maybe I could come up with a line of supplements. There you All go, right. man. At oh, least yeah. a vitamin D supplement. You know, yeah. start oh, small. Yeah. Vitamin then... D. You can't, you can't go wrong with vitamin D. <laughs> well, I just got reinvigorated. We went to a luncheon in honor of the West Point Institute of World Politics, where my husband and I are both on the faculty joint meeting. I sat at the head of the local Republican, the Women's Republican Group, and heard lectures about West Point and how, uh, and this is the first time since I'm back in the country that I heard the Pledge of Allegiance under God, so that was nice. So uh, I'm kind of reinvigorated. Well, that is uh, very good news, because life can get everyone down. It's exhausting. It's frustrating. So the fact that uh, Dr. Bill Auer is ready to go excites me. See, I'm excited. It's infectious. All right. Let's get into these stories. We've got two, as always. The first is uh, by Dr. Bill Auer. The second is one I wrote, um, eviscerating journalism today, because I can't stand it. But we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, Barbara, your story is called Summer Disasters, Triage, Rescue, or Murder. And this is an intriguing story that I was not familiar with. Um, But let me read this introduction, and I'll give a brief rundown, and then you can sort of nail down the the particulars that people need to know, because there's a lot going on here. So... You write, in 2005, Hurricane Katrina and its devastation resulted in manslaughter charges against Dr. Anna Poe, I believe that's how you pronounce her name, along with a host of civil actions for murder. Dr. Poe received an AMA commendation for the same activities she was charged with. Okay, so there's all kinds of crazy stuff here. But as I understand the story, this is after Hurricane Katrina hits New Orleans in 2005, and Dr. Poe is on staff at Memorial Hospital, I believe. Mm-hmm. And so once once the hurricane hits, the hospital floods, they lose power, the emergency generators go down, they're running out of food, they're running out of medical supplies because it's a disaster zone. So you have nurses keeping people alive with manual uh, ventilators, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, it's nuts. And then, and then it, I guess they're trapped in the hospital, so they can only get a few people out at a time. They have to go down stairwells that are completely dark. It's, it's I want to say, seven stories, seven flights of stairs, if I remember right. It's, in some of the reports, I've read seven or eight. Okay. So just picture that, if you will, everyone. You're walking down f- flights of stairs in a hospital in the complete dark. Oh, and by the way, it's over 100 degrees because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you're in New Orleans, right? So the humidity is absurd. There's a hurricane. Um, and so they're gradually getting uh, both patients and doctors and staff out of the hospital, but apparently they can't get everyone. And Dr. Poe is one of the physicians that stayed behind to try to care for the, the sick people. And just as an example, there were a lot of uh, obese or several obese patients. They were so big that it was nigh impossible to move them. And so she stays. I think at some point, and again, this is where things get a little fuzzy for me, uh, Dr. Bill Auer, so you can explain. But at some point, she begins to administer morphine combined with another drug. Um, 
and she says to you know relieve their anxiety and to relieve the pain that they may be experiencing because they're stuck in this hospital it's sweltering it's dark it's it's misery right it's if if you know if you're going to lose your life this is a rough way to go or or even if you're going to get out you don't want to experience this so after after the disaster after everything's cleared she's actually charged with uh, manslaughter because I, because i think six of the patients died actually actually they found 45 corpses in the hospital itself on the top two floors where which was a separate facility sort of integrated with the hospital which had critically ill elderly people with multiple conditions nine people died uh all of them apparently were found with morphine in their systems and she was charged with manslaughter for four of them those four were just randomly selected i think if they had done the other nine they would have found the same thing but those are the ones that they had the data i see okay thank you for clarifying that so um and this is where I want you to jump in and start explaining things because there's there's disagreement um, among experts about this. So I don't believe the criminal charges went to trial. I think those are thrown out. But then there were still civil lawsuits, and then you had you had a handful of doctors and even pathologists who said, yeah, you know, this combination of drugs and the doses she administered killed these people, and she deserves to be charged. But then you had others saying, there's no possible way you can know that. I mean, these bodies have been sitting in these, you know, searing, sordid temperatures for days on end. You just can't know that. And then you had the prosecutor or the, the attorney general, I believe it was, you know, accusing her of outright murdering patients. And then she's obviously had she has defenders because she was awarded commendations by the American Medical Association. So, so what's going on here? Can we make any sense of this at all? Well, we can disentangle some of it. The experts that were called in, amongst them Michael Baden and Sarah Wept, are amongst the top medical pathologists and forensic pathologists in the country. I mean, they have incredible lionized reputations but they get paid for their testimony. So let's not forget that these people, they're not working, I mean, they're not employed on a daily basis now. They were medical examiners. I think Michael Baden was in New York and Cyril Wells was someplace in the Midwest. Uh, But they're not. They make their money now as medical expert witnesses and they need publicity. How much bias is involved? Who knows? How much of the actual toxicology reports? Who knows? I'm sure they probably got the written reports. Did they see the patients? I surely doubt it. So they're reading the reports and they're saying, okay, I see morphine in this report together with the benzodiazepine, um, and that means murder. The problem that we have, and this is really an issue of bioethics crossing swords with law, is the definition of murder is intent. Did she intend to kill them? And nobody knows but Dr. Poe or Poe, and probably she doesn't even know. I mean, I'm guessing that she has a bunch of patients there. She is the only doctor who remained behind. There were other doctors who got on her case and who charged her and who made, and who instigated the attorney general and the prosecutor. In other words, this was instigated by other doctors who escaped earlier. 
So she's alone with two or three loyal nurses and she's got to make a decision. Initially, and this hospital, from what I gather, is in Hospital Alley. There are other hospitals in the area. And they didn't make plans to evacuate these top two floors, thinking that they would be evacuated earlier on. And a decision was, according to some of the reports I've read, there's a book by Carla Holloway, which she says this, that the decision midway on was made to stop evacuating Memorial and focus on some of the more wealthier hospitals. I mean, this is what she says. I can't prove it. But what is provable, apparently, is that the rescue efforts tapered off. And so Dr. Pooh is left with a bunch of patients on the ninth, on the 7th and 8th floor. What does she do with them? The biggest problem is uncertainty. She has no way of knowing whether they will be evacuated, whether evacuation facilities, will there be any more helicopters, whether there'll be any more rowboats. She doesn't know. And even if they are there, there are several that are clearly not amenable to being rescued. And so she's stuck with this, what do I do now? My, you know, in our heart of hearts, we would like to say, well, I don't want them to suffer. Okay, I don't want them to suffer. What does that mean exactly? Okay, Chuck, you're the doctor. I don't want them to suffer. What does that mean? Well, you know, you get now we're getting into the whole area of, of end of life issues and comfort measures and uh, how that oftentimes uh, may bleed over to euthanasia, depending on who's doing the viewing of the very same acts. You know, my experience as a, a physician, and I didn't have to face anything close to this dilemma, but very often when we would have end-of-life conversations with the family, uh, cousin Elmer, who hadn't seen anybody uh, for two or three years, if not a decade, came rolling in and insisted that everything be done. Uh, and this was quite contrary to the feelings of the family that had been caring for the patient uh, in close proximity for the same period of time. And, and I think that that goes to the, 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 the difficulty is where the line of comfort care ends and where it moves on over to uh, euthanasia. The, the medications that she had available to use uh, certainly alleviate pain, certainly make people uh, less anxious, but all are respiratory depressants. So where is the line on that? In, in addition, you have patients that were on uh, ventilators that are no longer being ventilated by the machine. They are being hand ventilated by the nursing staff. And this can only go on for, for so long, at which point uh, you no longer can sustain um, ventilating and th these patients suffocate. Faced with that, isn't it more um, beneficial, less harmful um, to give them medications that will ease them along than to allow them to suffocate? What's interesting from a legal perspective, in a non-emergency case like this, Cousin Elmer's coming in has no legal standing before a court. 
when a court has to make a decision about do we pull the plug or not, they look first to something in writing, if not something in writing, then something that the patient said during their lifetime to a close person, you know, if the end comes near, I want to go. So they look for hard stuff, not from Cousin Elmer. One of the allegations here was all of these patients that were found this, this way had DNR orders. And some of the opponents of Dr. New said DNR, Dr. Poe said DNR stands for do not resuscitate. It does not stand for do not rescue. And some of the allegations were she interpolated or interpreted anybody who wanted DNR as meaning they don't want to be rescued. And so a lot of things got conflated here as opposed to the, the key issue, which Chuck just mentioned, is how do I do no harm? And do no harm in this case may well be killing the patient, although that's not your primary intent. And I know several stories from doctors that I've represented that they see a patient coming in with a massive heart attack and they shoot morphine in them thinking that they're going to put them out of their misery and the patients live. And I have a friend who is a doctor and whose brother is a doctor and a sixth generation of doctors and their father was a doctor and they decided he had lung cancer and they were going to give him morphine uh, to put him out of his misery. And it took him three times to do it because they didn't give him enough morphine. So even when you give morphine, it's not a guarantee that the patient is, is not going to survive. What it will do is, of course, take away the pain. Now, in conjunction with the benzodiazepam, um, maybe it hastened the end. On the other hand, knowing that you're sitting in a hospital and that you're going to be there for at least another day with no water, 100-something degrees, horrible situation, um, the anxiety itself isn't going to help. And so uh, my own view would be that Dr. Anapu did not have any intent specifically in her mind one way or another other than to immediately alleviate their suffering knowing, knowing that it might result in their death but that she wasn't thinking about that. She just wanted to put them out of their misery for as long as she could, knowing that she was going to evacuate herself in a short period of time and they would be alone. And then what? I mean, can you imagine anything worse than, okay, the, she puts, the, the doctor puts you out for two hours, which is a safe amount, and then you wake up and you're alone? Yeah, no, I, I, I think that it, it, you're really correct in zeroing in on intent. And... That's such a, a tough area. I know that the law uh, tends to see these things in black and white. Um, maybe the ethicist in you sees it is a little bit more gray. Certainly as a physician, um, all of my actions have been with the attempt uh, of alleviating suffering. Uh, the outcomes have not always been that way. I am, you know, you got to be honest about that. But... Um, I, I think it's very difficult to 
to second guess uh, physicians' intent, especially in a situation like this. And keeping in mind, at least for malpractice, an error in judgment is not malpractice. You, if you do everything that you reasonably think you should do and you make a mistake, that is not malpractice. Malpractice is carelessness. So, you know, I don't know what the numbers were. I couldn't find anything that released the exact numbers. I mean, if they had huge amounts, maybe that would have been one thing. But if the numbers were within the realm of it could be one thing or it could be the other thing, keeping in mind these were not hale and hearty patients. They were 350 pounds. They had many comorbidities. They were, but they were not healthy people. Um, so maybe she made a mistake and she gave too much. That's not malpractice. Let me, uh, let me throw a couple of questions at, at both of you. Barbara, you said something interesting a minute ago. You said there's a difference between a do not resuscitate order and failing to rescue. For, for normal folk like me, can you explain the difference? Because I'm having trouble making sense of that in my sure. mind. Sure. And, you know, when I was in the hospital many years ago with a ruptured appendix and the nurse shoves a DNR order on my face and I didn't want to sign it, and she said, you will sign it. I wasn't afraid of the doctor. I told the doctor what kind of incision I wanted. I told the anesthesiologist what kind of what kind of anesthesia I wanted, but the nurse, I was scared to death of the nurse, and I signed it. I did not want to sign it. DNR means do not resuscitate. So if you're flat, well, Chuck will, but it, it means that if you're, and Chuck, step in here, that if you're legally dead for a second, we won't try to resuscitate you. But these people said you can be resuscitated. You can be brought back to quote-unquote life. And Dr. Poe's adversary said she interpreted anybody who said DNR as meaning you could kill me. Right. Well, you know, there's a I'm surprised that they would even take they take a patient to the OR with a do not resuscitate order. It, that's that's got to be a very rare uh situation because if you're willing to have an operation then you got to be willing to to take the whole ride and let us do the best we can and that includes trying to resuscitate you um there is a concept of failure to rescue which means that you initiate resuscitative measures but they fail um and I don't know whether that was what they were really thinking when they said do not rescue versus do not resuscitate. Um, I think it was colloquial, fact, I think she, it was colloquial, Chuck. I think that her adversaries used that as a moniker to make her seem worse than she was. I don't I think that they said it was just used as a media come on. Right. And you know, because the the, the truth of the matter was is that she only had limited resources, and she was not going to rescue anyone. There was going to be have to be outside agency uh, to facilitate the rescues. So under the best of circumstances, um, she could provide um, the best medical care and comfort she could. And, and that, that I, th I really think is what she did. Given, given what... Given the uncertainty of not knowing what was going to happen or even how long she would be able to stay there. 
or how long she would be, she wouldn't pass out from the heat and the lack of water and the lack of food. I mean, there was no guarantee that her own mental health, physical health would have been okay. What I did find fascinating about this case, and you said, Chuck uh, Cameron, that you weren't aware of it. If you go looking, there is stuff on this case, but you have to go looking. I did not hear of this case when I was in America, and I was in America in 2005. Um, I only heard of this case when I was in Israel. It was a case study in Israeli bioethics, and of course their triage procedures undergo a lot of discussion because if you have an Arab killing a Jew and the Arab is in worst case, who do you triage first and the prevailing view is the person who is most severely injured, even if it's the Arab, you attend to the Arab first. So the issue of triage is a big deal in Israel. And that's where I heard the case first. Only then did I go back and look. And here it seems to have kind of been buried under the, I mean, it's there. You can find it. I linked to many sources, but it was not brought out of the bioethics community it's, I only found one bioethics book that mentioned it. It's, it's not well studied, and I think it should be. A follow-up question, and this is, this is for both of you, I suppose, but uh, Barbara, you mentioned in the story that other physicians administered morphine, I, I believe, in these similar circumstances. Maybe that they were at other hospitals or different, you know, different part of the facility or something, but the attorney general only went after her. Yeah. Is, was there something distinguishing about her case that made her a better target or did they just want to make an example of someone? I have to read between the lines here. There was one person who was out to get her, clearly out to get her. You can see it as you read the reports and the other physician, but he, the other physician only administered morphine from what I could tell, not the, um, the other sedatives. Uh, might have been on a higher level. But there was some personality event here uh, that was an undercutting event. There was also, in Carla Holloway's book, um, a statement that the people that were not rescued was a racial decision, which it clearly wasn't because I saw pictures of some of the people, and some are white, some are black. They were all very ill. Uh, but this was used as, as a personal event and as uh, some people say a racial event, which is not surprising. Anytime you have a bad situation, people use it for whatever they want to use it for. Yeah, the hospitals are not uh, free of politics. Uh, there's, a, there's always um, political back and forth. And, you know, I, I, I think that one physician was very vocal in saying that Dr. Tao had, had uh, violated the, our, basically our canon of ethics and, and should be charged. And, you know, we can become analytical about it and question the fact that he particularly left two days before. So maybe he had um, some form of survivor's guilt that he was working out on the people that remained. So uh, the final question, I think we can keep talking about this forever, and, and we can if you guys have more to add, but I'm, I'm thinking of a, a, from a similar, not similar, but a seemingly related case in the UK, and that's with the nurse uh, Lucy Letby, who was just recently uh, charged for murdering, I think it was six infants, six newborns, 
And so in those case, in that case, from what I understand from reading the the, the coverage of it, it, it was pretty clear cut. So for example, like the, the number of neonatal, neonatal deaths went from like three to 13, <laughs> right? That's a bit above average. And so that turned them on to her. And then they started looking and the way that they died seemed right. This is, there's clearly something uh, awful going on here. This is malintent. This is malevolence going on here. And then they ultimately pinned her for it. But the more I, I hear you both talk about this case in New Orleans, it seems the more distant you get from that, right? You know, you know, you know what I'm getting at? Like, it seems when there's, when a healthcare provider does something evil and does something deliberate like, like that, it's, it's reasonably easy to tell. Whereas in a case like this, there's a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking going on. It's a disaster situation. You know what I mean? Like, like, and, and Barbara, you sort of alluded to this, right? Right. It's quite possible that she wasn't in the best frame of mind, giving the dehydration and the hunger and the, you know, like she's probably fearing for her own life and thinking about her own family. And you, you see what I'm getting at here. It just seems like it's harder and harder. The more I learn about this to say, well, she probably did something criminal here. In the Anapu case, there, could you say, this is a criminal standard, beyond a reasonable doubt, these people would have survived. Had she not, had she not administered the drugs, beyond a reasonable doubt, these people would have survived. I don't think so. I don't think anybody could say that. And that's where I think you differ from the the nurse over there uh, who had her own issues to deal with. And those many of those babies could well have lived, maybe not all, I don't know. Um, but in, the, in these nine people who were in a critical care unit, I mean, that unit, those floors seven or eight were for critically ill patients. So they start out critically ill to begin with. Some of them were morbidly obese. Most of, they all had multiple conditions. They hadn't eaten, they were dehydrated. I mean, what was their longevity? What was their SOMA score? What was their score? What was their likelihood of surviving? Oh, right. Don't you agree with that, Chuck? Oh, oh exactly, you know, I. Uh, you know, it's interesting because, you know, you reference scores and you can see how people want to take the subjective out of these decisions and come up with some way to quantify what to do. Um, I, I don't think we can do it. I think that there's at, at the core uh, of medical care um, – is art. It's subjective. And um, the physician brings their experience to the decision making, hopefully that they have a, a relationship uh, to some degree with the patient that they can um, include that in making the decisions. But I, I'm a big fan that in the end, despite how much our legislature tries um, medicine remains a art and we can quantify some of it, but there's a, a portion in decision-making, um, 
that is subjective and is between the physician and the patient. And that's why when people like Cyril Welk and Michael Baden waltz in afterwards and say, oh boy, this is terrible, it's like, how would you have acted had you been there? I mean, this is, as you say, Chuck, this is an art. This is a decision. Did you have a relationship to a patient? Did any of the patients say to you, I'm scared to be here, God knows? I mean, she was talking to these patients. Did they? So, as I think Cameron used it, this is a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking. Um, she is working now on putting in immunity laws for certain physicians. There are some immunity laws that should govern. You have to be careful with immunity laws because they can go too far the other way also. What would be nice if there is some way that patients' end of life could be given to the patients themselves to control, but until we're at that stage, it belongs to the doctor, and that's why you have doctors. Yeah, it's it's troubling stuff. I, I, again, as we come back to on the show, ad nauseum, it, there's just so many situations where the answer isn't easy and there's real suffering, and we're not quite sure how to eliminate it. And and this seems like another one of those cases. And and I was going to ask, how do you prevent this? It sounds like there's some legal reforms that could be put in place. She she is very active in working on putting on in legal reforms what the status is. I don't know. I think they're in the process of being implemented. Of course, give, this probably goes right into your article. Given the politicization of what people should be doing, um, well, I'll give you an example. I sat on a committee about a bioethics cases, and the case concerned a midwife in Australia, I believe, and the patient, the baby was delivered not breathing, and they had done some test, and the, there was no oxygen, and the midwife didn't report it. And apparently there's some minuscule test that she could have done to see if the baby was breathing, but it was an electrical test and the baby was born, born dead. And I mean, it was nonsense. And there was one doctor from Israel and Israel is a very natalist. He said, she didn't do that one tiny test. Therefore she's guilty of murder. And so a lot of this has to do with one's political religion or religious belief of what you can do and what you can't do. And what, is appropriate for one religion isn't for another. And to tell some other religion what to do, I have problems with that. Anyway. That's a, uh, that's a perfect transition yes. into my story. As you noted, I'm, I'm glad you, glad you pointed that out. Incidentally, maybe one of the things we can focus on in the future is how people's various religious and philosophical views influence their healthcare decisions or influence the care that they receive or that they don't want to receive. I'm, I'm always fascinated by that. I think that's really, really uh, instructive to talk about that. So let's do that sometime. But in, but in the meantime here, the story that, that Barbara alluded to that I wrote a few days ago, it's called pay for play. Journalism is killing the media. Good riddance in case you were in doubt about what I think about journalism today. So the, the, the summary here, as, as I put it, goes, uh, reporters like to portray themselves as truth tellers who hold the powerful accountable. In reality, many of them are hired guns who publish propaganda under the guise of doing journalism. The good news is that a growing number of Americans are abandoning the legacy media for better sources of information. So just a brief rundown, and I'm curious to get your thoughts. Barbara, you kindly said you enjoyed my story, which I always appreciate hearing from, from thoughtful, intelligent people. But 
the, the basic here is that, and people well know this, is that um, the audiences for traditional news are declining. So the fewer people that watch cable news or that subscribe to the New York Times, that uh, harms their subscription revenue, it harms their ad revenue. Those business models are basically becoming obsolete very, very quickly. And so a lot of companies, a lot of news wires, a lot of a lot of media companies are turning to a nonprofit model where they apply for grants. And the people with the money to fund those grants are usually wealthy foundations. And many of them, not all, but many of them have explicitly political or ideological goals. So one of the examples I used in the story was the Walton Family Foundation, which uh, is run by the descendants of um, Walton, the guy who, who Sam, uh, founded Walmart. Yeah. I forgot his first name, but Sam Walton. Walton. Sam Walton. That's right. Sam's Club. Yeah, that guy. So his his descendants run this this foundation and they disseminate their their inheritance basically and whatever money they earn from investment to different causes and one of those is climate change solutions and they've been very explicit about this but they uh, recently in the last few years have given millions of dollars to the Associated Press to fund their climate change coverage but the grant comes with very explicit instructions to <laughs> to report on climate change solutions. And so unsurprisingly, the AP's coverage, um, instead of doing, and I think I can make a good case for this, instead of doing balanced coverage that tells people everything they need to know, it frames climate change as this critical disaster that we're not ready for. And then it, unsurprisingly, as the funding suggests, <laughs> uh, talks about what we need to do to get ready for that. And this is just one example, but this happens all over the place across all different uh, fields of science and, and, and medicine. You have examples of reporters, of journalists, of activist groups getting money and then putting out what is framed to the public as objective journalism, objective news. Let me give you the facts about this issue. When in reality, the people providing the coverage are often paid by the people who are the subjects of the story. And this is you know, if you go look at a 990, like an IRS form for a nonprofit group, you can find that information. Or if you go dig through the archives of press releases at a, at a foundation, which only crazy people like me do, you're not, you're not going to know that this is going on. And so that's what really bugs me is, is this perception that I'm a journalist and I'm a fact checker and I'm going to keep an eye on misinformation for you. And meanwhile, I'm getting paid to, <laughs> to promote silliness in, in many cases. So I'll stop there. That's my frustration. We can talk about how people are getting fed up with this based on some recent polling data. But uh, either of you jump in here. What are your thoughts? Well, I, you know, first of all, I think that eh, this is pervasive across all the political aisles. Um, that there are philanthropic organizations that are willing to put their thumb on the scale um, to suit their uh, their agenda or their goals. Um, so I think that that's probably true. I think um, I would take a little bit more nuanced view. I don't think that the journalists are necessarily telling us um, misinformation. Um, but I think that their choice of subject matter may um, misdirect our attention, if I can draw that distinction you know uh the same story repeated over and over again and after a while it, it takes on a life of its own it's happening all the time um and, and i think that that's probably um 
part of how the uh, these outside agencies put their thumb on journalism. Um, but I, I don't think that there's any secret cabal sitting in the back and saying, let's tell this story or that story. But I, I, I think that when they, you're right, when they get money to talk about solutions to climate change, they find a lot of things that are solutions. You know, yeah. Um, What's that old saying, you know, when, when all you have is a hammer, everything's a nail? It's a nail, everything's a nail. Interestingly, when I write, when I put preprints on SSRN, which is an academic preprint, this is long before peer review, and I write anything having to do with medicine, which I write a lot, they make me, which I don't care, disclose whether I've gotten any, whether I've been in conflicts of interest or whether I'm getting paid for it. So one possible solution is to be straight out. The report is saying I'm getting a grant from the Walden Foundation, uh, which espouses blah, blah, blah. Let every, every single newspaper or every single person who's getting strings attached finances disclose it. That's the first thing. The second thing is, and maybe there's something wrong with the standards of journalism these days, I, I don't, do you remember the movie? I think it was Up Close and Personal where, who was it? Um, the protagonist got in trouble because he didn't check with two different sources. And he said, what do you want? I check with my wife. But he didn't check with two different sources. So the standards of journalism seem to be a little bit, uh, or maybe a lot less than they were. Having said that, uh, if any of you remember Orson Welles' War of the Worlds, where he put on what, what sounded like great news, and it was about Martians invading, causing great havoc in America and people getting in their cars and going cross-country. And every so often he kept saying, this is a dramatization, this isn't real, this isn't real. And people let themselves be scared. And... Our adrenaline-addicted society is looking for things to scare them. And so the press who wants to make money are using anything to scare people. Now, when I used to write about asbestos, I used to send the reporters articles that I wrote. They didn't always quote me, but they appreciated the fact that I was giving them... I mean, these reporters, a lot of them have deadlines. And to the extent that people who are supposedly in the know can educate them, we would be helping them. We would be making their lives easier and they would appreciate it. And the third thing is there is this, was it the Deming effect? The lay people think they know more than the experts. You know, people with uh, lots of strings of letters after their names, like Chuck and I, have spent lots of hours and lots of years. Well, we don't count. And there are tons of books. I'm looking at my library now. Fault Lines, Hercules, Bow, Social Epistemology. was one book. Uh, on the layperson thinks that they're perfectly qualified to make their own decisions. Now, there, are, there may be solutions to the climate warming situation. There may be good ones. There may be bad ones. I did one part of my pre-doctoral thesis on 
curtailing methane gas. My advisor didn't have a clue what I was talking about because he was so focused on greenhouse gases. And I said, 11% of the, of the problem is from the cows. Do something about the cows or just the methane leaks from the pipes. There are a lot of leaks from the pipes. He was totally unaware of it. He was only focused on single-minded on greenhouse gases. And to the extent that there are many solutions that are available that we're not bringing to the fore, everybody is responsible for that. Now, is there some, and, and, and Sam Walton doesn't impress me as a bad person. We're not talking George Soros here. Uh, go to Sam Walton and say, Sam Walton, why don't you support a multi-solution program? I don't think you would have resistance to it, or maybe somebody else. Maybe their children, yes. But there are people out there who are not looking to skew things one way or another to their, I believe, I, I want to believe, maybe it's, maybe it's just wishful thinking, that there are people out there who want a solution. But I have to say one thing, there's a discussion I have with my husband, and who says, you know, global warming is, uh, is natural. And it's like, well... Even assuming global warming is natural and nobody knows the answer, if one percent, if the solution, if the problem is really bad, and it is, and one percent of it is caused by humans, however, methane, then shouldn't we address the one percent? Then the question becomes, how much money do we spend addressing the one percent, or do we address the issue by moving people to other places? like the story of the creed from the third millennium by Colleen McCullough. I mean, there are various ways to deal with this and just to cross one's hands over one's chest and say, well, this is, this is natural. Doesn't do it for me. There's a, there's a couple of things to add there. I want to, I want to explore this idea that the consumer, you know, the demand side of this information has some responsibility here. I think that's true. Um, but one thing to add about, you know, just this example itself is that the AP told a story, and again, I think this goes to a point one of you made that sometimes news coverage is factual but not truthful. To steal a uh, to steal a phrase from a podcaster I like named Michael Malice, he's a really really good media critic too. But that's one of the points he makes is that you know they will give you accurate information, but they will strip it of the context you need to make a sound judgment. And I think that's one of the cases. You know, so th their argument is not whether or not climate change is as far as I'm concerned anyway, the argument is not about, you know, is it natural? Is it man-made? Is it a disaster? Is it not a disaster? I think you can just take those for granted and say, yeah, we're, we're contributing to it and it can have very serious effects. Nevertheless, let's talk about mitigation. Let's talk about uh, adaptation. And we're really good at that. And so one of the examples that I give, and there's a lot of research on this, is that after you get a, a temperature spike, whether it's a, a day or a few weeks, or it's repeated over the course of a summer, um, purchases of air conditioning units explode, right? And cities open more cooling centers and you see improvements in infrastructure that are designed to address these increases in temperature. Now, when you read the AP story, the, the impression you get is that we have no idea how to calculate how heat contributes to um, weather-related deaths. And as a result of that, we're just kind of willy-nilly playing it by ear and there's more people dying all the time. I, from that, that is a false fact. Because during COVID, 
The statistics were very clear in Israel because everybody's blaming it on old people die, old people die, and it's a disease of the old people. And I've been writing, no, it's not a disease of the old people. More old people die because guess what? More old people die and children are spreading the disease. And people would say, no, no, it's not a disease of children. Anyway, there was a statistic that most, and I forgot the exact numbers, most deaths in old people came from heat and high particulate far in excess of COVID-related deaths. So there are, maybe not in the U.S., but certainly some countries have calculated precisely the excess deaths in older people due to hot air, due to particulates involved in hot air. Maybe we haven't done it as well as we should in the U.S., and maybe cold is worse of a problem. I don't know. That's not the point. The point is that there are accurate statistics out there and we should be collecting them. And if we're not collecting them, then we don't say, well, there's no statistics. Then we better go out and collect them. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. And I don't want to belabor the the point. I just thought it was interesting that, and again, you brought up COVID. I think that's funny because throughout the pandemic, if you suggested that there were hospitals miscounting COVID deaths, then you were, you know, you were, you were, I don't know, right of Alex Jones. You were Absolutely. insane. You know, how, Absolutely. how dare you, you know, Absolutely. and then, we, and then yeah. we come to a topic like this and it's arguably the most reputable authoritative wire service in the world, making the very <laughs> same argument, Absolutely. you know? Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And it goes back to your point is how politics and philosophy impacts on how we report the facts or the news and to be able to report it, hopefully, as we at ACSH do, in as straightforward a way as we can, or at least we work on each other and we advise the other, maybe we should start collecting better data. At least we as a group try to refine ourselves and try to put out the best information we know how, knowing that you can't get perfect information. Let me just add one point without belaboring too much more on this is that reading is an interactive event. Um, You you can tell that from looking at the comments on some of my articles. Um, I think I'm writing about one thing, and the comments are in a completely different place. I love reading the comments to your articles. (laughs) Chuck, I can't tell you why. It's entertainment to read those comments. you You cannot control what the reader takes away from your writing. Um, there's, so there's definitely an interaction um, that goes on with this, with, with the media in, in all of its forms. It is fascinating. And, and as we wrap up here, let's talk a little bit about the, the demand side, because I do think the, the journalists and the people that fund them have an obligation to tell the truth, because, I mean, that's what they tell you they're doing. Um, and I think it's deceptive in that they, they frame the material as if they're giving, like they're trying to bypass your filter. So they quote experts and they cite studies and, right, they do all the things. Their reporting has all the trappings that would make you believe that this is a valid news report. But nevertheless, on the other side, I do think as a, as a big fan of free will and human agency, I think you do have an obligation as a consumer to, to question what you're reading, especially if it's something that you agree with. And that's really hard. I think all, all three of us would agree that when you're reading something that sounds compelling and it's telling you what you want to hear, 
there's a little, I don't know if it's a dopamine hit or something, but it's like, yeah, that's what I wanted to hear, you know? So you have to really guard against that. And aside from the work that organizations like ours do to give people good information, I don't, I don't know how you get there. Cause the only way is to really incentivize people not to believe what they're reading. And, and maybe that's all it's going to take. And that's what we're seeing in the polling data. I mean, it's less than 30% of Americans believe that the, that journalists have their best interest at heart or that they put the public good over their own private financial good. And in fact, you're right. There are studies that show that people will gravitate to articles and to authors who say what they already believe. So nobody, it doesn't sound like people are being, are reading to be educated, except maybe on our side, I'm hoping. But for the most part, people are reading to get their dopamine shot, as you said, or their little pat on their head. I think the only way to deal with this stuff is in school, is in high school, maybe even college. And I mean, I used to do this when I was teaching uh, occupational health and safety. I used to have the students who came from management argue the manage the labor side and the labor students represent the management side. And boy, did their eyes open up. So, but that's a, a learned skill. And that's maybe they have to be taught. The only problem is, you know, even in the colleges, I just read that Harvard has the worst record of academics freedom of speech. If you can't speak freely in a college, where are the students going to learn this from? Yep, that's a whole nother troubling topic because because uh, what you're getting at there is that the mechanism for correcting people's mm-hmm. misunderstanding is is being mm-hmm. effectively locked down mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in increasing in increasing mm-hmm. ways. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, exactly. We'll have, we'll have to get to that someday, but let, let's leave it there. I really appreciate both of you coming on to do this again. It's a really great discussion. And Dr. Bill Auer, may I add, you're just adding a, a, a different angle to this, you know, questions that I wouldn't consider because I don't think about the law very much because I, I don't like it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it. But it adds a dimension to this that people need to explore. So, so thank you as always. In the yeah, meantime, thank you. In the meantime, follow us on social media. The organization is at ACSH.org. Uh, I am at Cam J English. If you tweet at me, I'll answer your questions and uh, interact with you. And we'll even talk about stuff if you if you present a compelling idea, because that's always good. Um, and then uh, Dr. Bill, our stuff is on our website. So just go to acsh.org and type in her name. You'll find all her articles. And I believe there's a link to your uh, your preprint work as well on there. Is that right? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> some article, the answer is yes. Okay. Okay. Very good. Well, check check out the preprint stuff because your your ACSH stuff is informative and it's sort of an introductory. Here's what you need to know. But if you want to go deeper, like I did that with some of the stuff you you wrote about uh, genetic engineering, which was just it's just so fascinating. All that stuff. So go okay. check that out. Okay. You can email the organization or tweet at us, and we'll get messages to Chuck because he's not a social media fan. <laughs> And and with that, we'll call it a day. 